BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It suddenly hit me last night. I was, I was watching TV. Louise and I were watching TV, actually with one of our kids. They were doing this reporting on the ground from Ukraine. And I got this incredible feeling of deja vu. You ever get these? You know, like you're watching a show and it's like, I've seen this before. And it suddenly hit me. I remember in the mid-1960s, I'm talking 65, 66, maybe even 64, I remember being told how terrible the North Vietnamese were, how they were communists and they were committing atrocities and they were trying to take down South Vietnam, blah 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 You recall Vietnam was partitioned when I believe it was when the French uh, failed in their attempt to seize the country. And, and I then also remembered, so, you know, we were prepared for the Vietnam War back in the 60s. And those of you old enough to remember know what I'm talking about. And then in 2003, and well, throughout the entire year of 2002, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney tried to prepare us for the war in Iraq. We were being sold a war. And the, the pattern, the way that they go about this is pretty straightforward and part of it is actually organic. I mean, you know, the news media is like doing all kinds of specials from the point of view of our side and it just hit me, it, I mean, just really hit me when my grandfather came to the United States in 1917. I don't know if he got drafted or if he volunteered, but off he went to World War I. When my father was in high school, Franklin Roosevelt was selling World War II to Americans and the, and the Republicans were very opposed to it. Oh no, we don't want to have a war. Mr. Hitler is fine. We can do business with Mr. Hitler. So. In my, father, in my grandfather's lifetime, we were sold a war. And by the way, uh, Woodrow Wilson hired Edward Bernays, the Sigmund Freud's nephew, to, I mean, this was the birth, literally the birth of modern public relations, to sell World War I. And you could argue it was a noble war. I'm, I'm not going to make that argument. I'm very ambivalent about World War I. World War II, we had to stop the Nazis. No doubt in my mind about that. It was what you might call a good war. 
But we were sold that war, too, over strong opposition in the United States. He had Charlie Lindbergh out there, you know, with his America First movement going, no, no, we need to take care of Americans first. And then we were sold the war in Vietnam, and then we were sold the war in Iraq. And now it seems to me that we're being sold a war in Ukraine. Now, let me be very clear about this. I think our involvement in the war in Ukraine is more like World War II than it is like Vietnam or Iraq. In other words, we're on the good side. I think Russia is taking the position with regard to Iraq that we took with regard to both, excuse me, Russia is taking the position with regard to Ukraine that we took with regard to both Iraq and Vietnam. In other words, we were the aggressors. We were breaking international law. We were violating international norms and we got sold that. Russia is now trying to sell this war to their people the way that George W. Bush and, and Lyndon Johnson lied us into the wars in Vietnam and Iraq. So I confess to a, a very, very high degree of ambivalence about this. I, in other words, I, I'm seeing that we're being, we're being sold a war, essentially. And I'm thinking probably it's an appropriate war, which I never thought I would say. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. I thought World War II was the end of that kind of thing. Or am I going all warmonger here? But it sure seems to me like, and now, you know, Russia's talking about nuclear wars and we're, and, and Lloyd Austin is like, eh, you know, that's not useful conversation. How is this going to play out? Where do you think this is going to go? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Oh, and then there was Daddy Bush. He lied us into the first war with Iraq, you know, with, oh, they're taking babies out of incubators when it wasn't true. It was a lie. Peter Strzok is tweeting, coming soon to Russian state media, comrade Senator Paul. This is interesting. He says that August 2018 trip to Moscow to give Putin a letter from Trump and Deripaska's investments in Kentucky paid off well. Funny how he's also led the charge to scale back USIC authorities who could be used against Russia. Peter Strzok, of course, was the guy in the FBI who was in charge of counterpionage or counterterrorism or whatever it was, you know, relative to Russia, who Donald Trump drove out of the FBI. On the war front, Russia has cut off gas supplies just in the last 24 hours to both Poland and Bulgaria. Poland gets about 60% of their natural gas from Russia. Bulgaria gets about 90%. Interestingly, both countries are saying, we can make it through. It's interesting how, how Europe is dealing with this. Of course, it's spring, too, and so the demand for natural gas is lower. But I want to start today with my rant from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Rand Paul Hearts, the Russianized Libertarian Version of the Laissez-Faire System. And, you know, there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack here. And it, it starts out, Americans of all political persuasions, you know, we're somewhat, somewhere between horrified and mystified yesterday. Sean, can you pull this audio out of my computer? This is uh, not the 360, it's my computer. This is an interaction, an interchange. In fact, I think I played a clip of this yesterday afternoon, very briefly, between Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, the, the Republican senator from Kentucky, and Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State. My judgment is different. Uh, if you look at the countries that Russia has attacked, uh, over the last years, Georgia, 
leading forces in Transnistria and Moldova, and then repeatedly Ukraine, these are countries that were not part of NATO. Uh, it has not attacked NATO countries uh, for probably a very good reason. You could also argue the countries they've attacked were part of Russia. Well, that... Uh, I, we're part of the Soviet Union. Yes, and I, fir I firmly disagree with, uh, with, with that proposition. It is the fundamental right of these countries to decide their own future and their own destiny. And I'm saying it's not, but I'm important. saying that the countries that have been attacked, Georgia and Ukraine, were part of the Soviet Union. And, that were, and they were Russia part of the Soviet attack. Union since the 1920s. But that does not that does not give Russia the right to attack them on the country. I'm not saying it does, but it they were really liberated from being part of this uh, empire by force. So here you've got Rand Paul repeating the Vladimir Putin's talking points. And, you know, a lot of people were going, what? Rand Paul loves Russia? He loves Putin? I don't think it's that simple. I mean, it is possible to, to, to build a case that Rand Paul is some kind of, you know, Putin uh, lover. Uh, his grandson-in-law, who was convicted of campaign fraud for crimes he committed when he was running Rand Paul's campaign, and who Donald Trump then pardoned, was just again last month charged with a new case of campaign fraud, this time for funneling massive sums of Russian money into the 2016 campaigns. Huh. Three weeks after Trump was groveling in front of Putin at Helsinki and attacking the U.S. intelligence services, Rand Paul secretly flew to Moscow on Donald Trump's behalf and hand-delivered a private note to Putin, which remains undisclosed to this day. Just a f few weeks after the eight Republican lawmakers spent the 4th of July in Moscow, that was uh, Shelby, Danes, Hoven, Johnson, Kennedy, Moran, Thune, and Granger. They spent that week of uh, the 4th of July in Moscow. Just, just a couple weeks after that, Senator Paul made his own separate, private, secret trip to Moscow to meet, well, it wasn't secret, actually, uh, to meet with Russian lawmakers to discuss foreign relations. And at that meeting, one of the Russian lawmakers told him he could become a real man with a capital M if he would just help out Maria Butini, you know, the Russian spy who had an affair with a wealthy associate of Rand Paul's. So, you know, you could build this case, but it's an entirely circumstantial case, and I'm skeptical of it. Yeah, although, I mean, others have tried to build this case also. This is John McCain. This was back about five years ago or so, when Montenegro wanted to become part of NATO. And that requires U.S. approval, right? In fact, it requires the approval of 100% of all the NATO countries. It's a consensus organization. And so they called for a vote in the United States Senate because the Senate has to approve all treaties. The NATO is a treaty. They called for unanimous consent. And Rand Paul said, no, I don't consent. And then he walked out. And John McCain went nuts. The, here's the clip. I object. Objection, sir. So that's Rand Paul objecting. This is John McCain. Without justification, and walk away. And walk away. The only conclusion you can draw when he walks away is he has no argument to be made. He has no justification for his objection to having a small nation be part of NATO that is under assault from the Russians. So I repeat again, the senator from Kentucky is now working for Vladimir Putin. So I'll repeat again, the senator from Kentucky is now working for Vladimir Putin. But I don't think that this is the key to the whole thing. I don't think that Rand Paul is doing this because he's working for Putin, John McCain's observations notwithstanding. I think that what's going on here 
is that Rand Paul is a follower, a devotee of this crackpot libertarian objectivist theory that was promoted uh, by, uh, you know, what some believe was his namesake, Ayn Rand, and others. And libertarians don't believe in democracy. They will tell you that right up front. They'll, they'll you know, if you ask them, they will tell you, a gen an actual genuine libertarian, or Ayn Rand, an objectivist, will tell you that uh, democracy is mob rule. Democracy, and, and, and I mean, Mike Lee uh, tweeted this out on October 8th, uh, two years ago. Democracy isn't the objective. Ran uh, liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Ranked democracy can thwart that. So the argument that they make is that if people can choose what they want through referendums or elected representatives, they'll always bankrupt a nation. And they'll do this by voting for lots of free stuff for themselves. Therefore, nations had to put guardrails in place to prevent the rabble from voting themselves all that free stuff. The best of those guardrails is to allow unlimited political donations, campaign financing from morbidly rich people who have proven their brilliance, their competence, and their wisdom by getting or inheriting riches. Right? And if the people still demand free stuff and go around collecting signatures to raise the minimum wage or ban cruise ships from ecologically sensitive areas or let ex-felons vote, all things that happened in Florida, then you just do what Ron DeSantis did last July. He, he signed a law saying you can't do citizens' referendums anymore in Florida. Libertarians think they have this all figured out, but they're totally wrong. There has never been a country in the history of the world that was run along libertarian lines that didn't end up a, a dictatorship. This is what's going on in Russia right now. We sent the, you know, the Chicago boys back in the, in the late 90s over to Russia, or in the early 90s, excuse me, over to Russia to help them privatize their system. And so now you've got, you know, a couple of Russian oligarchs who are supplying all the military, and you've got Russian soldiers going into battle with cardboard bulletproof vests. I mean, I'm not making that up. It's true. And this is what happens. And, and you've got, you know, Putin running the country like a dictator. I think this is the source of Rand Paul's real love, apparent love, for Putin and Russia. It's not a romantic love for Putin. It's not even admiration for Putin. It's brotherhood with Putin. It's a fraternal love. He sees Putin as a guy who's running the country the way that Rand Paul thinks America should be run. He, he loves this Russianized, now, you know, he would do it slightly differently here in the United States. We'd use different language and all these kind of things, but he loves this Russianized libertarian version of laissez-faire economics and politics. And like his father, he has spent his entire career trying to impose that libertarian vision on America. I mean, the fact is no country in the world has ever failed because their people voted themselves too much free stuff. And no country in the world has ever succeeded as a libertarian country. Libertarianism and democracy are incompatible with each other. And Rand Paul understands that, which is why he's promoting Russia and Russia's interests, in my humble opinion. I think this is a really critical point that most Americans don't get. There, there was this Scottish economist who is quoted, he actually didn't say this stuff, but he is quoted as, and, and it's an article of faith among libertarians, that uh, this, this Scottish philosopher, say, or economist, late 19th century, 
saying that there has never been a successful democracy in the world because of the or, or, or that has lasted more than 200 years because the people will always vote themselves free stuff and then with all that free stuff they will destroy the country they'll bankrupt the country as i said it's never happened that way and he had he, he was writing you know the guy who wrote this this was in the 50s um, the guy who wrote it was actually a right winger and he just kind of put words in this economist's mouth and it was like the 200th anniversary of the United States. So it was back in the, it must've been the seventies. And you know, it was just like weird stuff. This is, this is their belief system. It's just that, it's just very straightforward. So interesting, very interesting. Alrighty, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. A lot to talk about. Matt in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey Matt, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how about comparing with the Korean War, where there was a major power just over the border, the major power had already invaded, had a veto on the Security Council, but I believe was boycotting the Security Council, so it went through. The major the power at that Council. time being China? China, not as established as Russia. It was young as a communist country. Right, and But I, I think that if we look at the Korean War, we might be able to figure some things out about the Ukraine situation. I don't know. I'm just suggesting it. That's all. The Korean War was resolved before I was old enough to remember anything. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, me too. <laughs> so I have no, no personal recollection of it, but my wife's uncle fought in the Korean War and, and came back and was horribly scarred by it. I mean, psychologically. You know, I've heard these stories from other people of that age, you know, my father's age, that the Korean War was hell on wheels. It was just a terrible, terrible, terrible war. And Harry Truman lost the election. Well, actually, he didn't even run for re-election in, 19, in 1952 uh, when Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican, was elected because that war in South Korea was such a disaster. In fact, the main sales pitch for, for Dwight Eisenhower when he was running for president was, you know, vote for Eisenhower, vote for peace. Now, he wasn't saying peace generically. He wasn't talking about, I'm not going to start a war with the Soviet Union or something like that. He was, you know, coming right out and saying in no uncertain terms that he wanted to end the war in North Korea or in South Korea. I think that everything you've just said is instructional regarding the Ukraine, because we could lose the election to Trump if uh, Biden uh, escalated things or if Putin escalated things and we got into Ukraine and everybody started uh, worrying about that and uh, we may lose the election to Trump anyway but um, I'm just saying I think everything you said is right spot on and I think it maybe compares closely with the Korean War I don't know yeah. you know I'm I, I, I I'm just suspect a, I'm just a nobody. I'm not a professor. Or anything. No, no, I, and I'm not a scholar of the Korean War, so I can't speak to that. But I can't. <laughs> but I do know that the Korean War became very, very unpopular. This is the actual campaign ad that Dwight Eisenhower ran in 1952. This is the ad that Dwight Eisenhower ran as a candidate for peace. He has met Europe's leaders and got them working with us. Elect the number one man for the number one job of our time. Vote for peace, vote for Eisenhower. I mean, that was his slogan. I'm not presenting myself as an expert on foreign policy, but I have been around the block a few times on this, and, and I'm a reasonably good observer of politics, is that uh, Putin horribly miscalculated. He thought he could do in Ukraine what he did in Georgia, basically just roll in the tanks and everybody would just roll over. 
and uh, and and Trump had softened them up. I mean, the, you know, the the Trump presidency was all preparation Absolutely. for this. Um, Absolutely. So, in fact, Trump even withheld military aid to Ukraine as a, a part of his extortion attempt. So, when it didn't go the way that Putin wanted, I, I think Putin is now in a position where he's close to having to either win the war, take a piece of Ukraine and save face, or go out with a bang. And by bang, I'm talking about nuclear weapons. And I think that's why he's, he's threatening them. I don't think he's threatening that he's going to nuke New York and Chicago. I think what he's threatening is that he's going to use battlefield nukes and he's going to turn Kiev into cinders. That's my guess. And I think that Anthony Blinken putting our ambassador from Slovenia, forgive me for not recalling her name, I just only learned it in the last two days. Apparently she's a, she's a really competent professional uh, you know, ambassador, uh, d foreign diplomat. We're actually going to reopen our embassy in Kiev, and she's going to and she's going to go there, and that's a way of putting a flag in the ground, saying, you know, we are really here. I said, I think Lloyd Austin is going to walk back his statement that wants to weaken Russia. He has been asked about it a dozen times. Everybody else perked up their ears just like I did when he said that, and he has now said, you know, we have already weakened Russia, and we want to weaken them further. And like I said, that's fighting words for Russia. So again, this is all the stuff that causes me to think that we are being prepared for war. Now, the debate, I guess the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? If we don't stop Russia at Ukraine, they're, you know, they've declared now, a Russian general has declared they're going to go to Moldova. Um, another you know, Russian state television did a fairly lengthy show a couple of days ago saying that they should take the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. That's to the north of Poland. Moldova is to the south and, and southeast of Poland. Obviously, Poland is part of the old Soviet Union. What else is next? I'm of the opinion that this is much like, you know, when Hitler took Poland in 1939, I, I believe it was, or 37, Everybody was like, oh, he's, he's just he's just going to stop there. He just wants Poland. And, you know, this was after he'd already annexed the Sudetenland. It doesn't work that way. Dale, I got to run, but thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. I don't think that Putin is going to stop with Ukraine. I don't think he's going to stop with Ukraine and Moldova. And frankly, I don't think he's going to stop with Ukraine, Moldova, and the Baltic states. Brian in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? I think people forget that Putin is like John Gotti. It's John Gotti with an intelligence service, a large military, and nuclear weapons. And that's his morality level. Um, This is a very, very delicate situation. Um, People don't realize how fast things would escalate. If we were to get into a shooting war with the Russians, you know, our doctrine is we attack command and control and all the radars and satellites, and they would do the exact same thing to us. And studies have shown in, in war gaming and whatnot, and believe me, the Pentagon has all kinds of plans for fighting the Russians, that as soon as one side starts to lose, the nuclear weapons come out. And then it's Katie bar the door. And then it escalates super fast. I understand. So you could have a couple planes shot down this afternoon, and if things went really fast, you could have nuclear weapons going off tomorrow morning. And then it would be the story of humanity would change forever. That's how fast it goes. Assuming now you're making an assumption here, Brian, that uh, I'm not uh, I'm not confident is is a safe assumption. And that is that it's going to go to transatlantic major, you know, all out mutually assured destruction kind of nuclear war. And I'm guessing that there's, and again, I realize the stakes here are insane, right? We're talking about possibly sterilizing the entire planet. But I'm guessing that there's a whole bunch of steps that are going to happen before that. Even once a nuclear weapon has been exploded, starting with battlefield nukes. I mean, that's what Putin is moving into that region, or battlefield nukes. He did that, what, three weeks ago? You know, I have full confidence in our military professionals, and that's why I'm happy as heck that Biden is in the presidency, because I think he is smart enough to listen to the experts. You know, just like I said at the start, our enemy decision maker is John Gotti. That's how we got to think of this man. Too many Americans think of him as just another world leader, like he's the king of Germany or something. You know, he's a ruthless criminal who's murdered hundreds of thousands of people to get where he is. And apparently delights in it. And Russian mentality, they don't think anything of sacrificing their own troops. I mean, the Russians, they sacrificed two million casualties just to take Berlin at the end of the war. Germany was on its knees, and Stalin still sent well, in I think army. Well, I think and, you could have argued that they viewed that as an existential threat to the republic, which is how Putin is trying to sell this now to his own people. You know, you, tr- you take me down, time. you're taking Russia down. I am Russia. Right. That's that's his sales pitch, basically, which is a con. And I think our smart strategy that we're using is to just slowly bleed the Russian army, try and protect as many recurring civilians as possible and then hope for some political change in Russia, because this this war is going to be a disaster. I mean, I heard one analyst. Russia could turn into a failed state because if Russia loses the war, Putin loses. And then what comes next? And then you have this huge country with a shrinking demographic with all the oil and the minerals and the timber. So who's going to go in there next? Right. Well, in my mind, the best hope is that the people of Russia, that that somebody somebody close enough to Putin to end this ends it. 
Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? These people are are evil. They're not evil like we think they're evil. They're evil, evil, like movie evil. They do. Yeah. They, they sport hunt. They kill innocent animals and do all kinds of gnarly stuff for fun. Well, the Trump kids certainly do. You're right. You know, elephants and giraffes and things, lions. For fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Paul. he walks in on, on women getting dressed for fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I'll get that, that, that may you. be a slightly different thing, but I get, I, I totally get what you're saying. Is war in Ukraine that involves more than just Ukraine and Russia imminent? Number one. Number two, if it becomes a NATO war, sh should or will the United States become involved in it? Number three, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the United States or for peace around the world or for democracies around the world? And I guess a lot of that is predicated on the question, does Putin want to go beyond Ukraine? A whole bunch of different people offering different thoughts on this. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, your thoughts. Well, sure, Tom. The, the answer to your last question is, yeah, he already has gone beyond Ukraine. So You mean with the, Transnistria and Georgia? Small country, Moldova. Uh, yeah, that's Transnistria. That's the part of Moldova that he owns. Yeah. Okay. So none of the three end games that you articulated with the previous caller can be tolerated, not at least of which is using a tactical nuclear weapon. And the reason is because if one is allowed, all three will be used. No right. question about it. And besides, NATO was formed to stop Russian aggression. And here we stand by and allow Russian aggression. He's going, he'll move into everyone. Poland was part of NATO. Remember the Warsaw Pact? Warsaw's in Poland. Yep. Okay, so uh, is Poland now back on, uh, back? Uh, uh, you know, uh, is that fair game too? For any, uh, it will be the, not only the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, it will be the Baltics and the Balkans will all be back on Putin's list. Oh, I no think they already are. He's a revanchist. He wants to recapture lost power. I think they and already are. Lost, I, think, I think he's pulling a Hitler here. Absolutely. And, and, and you know what? Do we want to be the Neville Chamberlain that appeases him and says, oh, yeah, go ahead and take the sedate land. We're, we're okay with that. It's just a little thing. Just take, because if he takes, if he takes any part of Ukraine, well, well, that's what he did. This is this is what you know. The Neville Chamberlain was moment was 2014 with Crimea. Yeah, kind of, yeah, sure. You can say that. That's for sure. So we don't need to continue to make that mistake. And he will. And here's this points out why NATO is behaving is exactly what I've said on this program weeks ago. Is that our theory of nuclear deterrent is now being proved wrong? This mutually assured destruction crap. Is this basically? It says if you have, if, if Putin has a nuclear weapon, he doesn't have to use it. He can just bludgeon you to death with his cudgel, his right. his, 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 his uh, regular, you know, traditional. What do they call them? Battlefield nukes, tactical nukes. Right, right, yeah. No, not not battlefield nukes. I'm saying he doesn't have to use a nuke. If he has them, he can use conventional weaponry to just beat the crap out of everybody. That's what we're watching. We are the NATO oh. neighborhood watching somebody who doesn't live in our neighborhood get the crap kicked out of him by somebody else who doesn't live in this neighborhood too. Yeah. And we're just sitting there going, oh, well, you know, he doesn't live here, so, you know, we really can't do anything. We are being, it's, no, we can't, this, and, and Putin is taking that cue, and he is involved in genocide. Obviously, the, the graves that were, what was on the news that, uh, he just, they've just made a, a mass grave of 9,000 bodies. Right. This is Hitler. 
Yeah, it is. It, it really is. And, and the question is, is America prepared to deal with this? I mean, it, again, this was this was this just sudden realization that I got last night. Oh, my God, America is going to war. And, and yes, your yes, your question, if NATO, if NATO's involved, should America be involved? Yes, we're part of NATO. Otherwise, do we say, oh, you know, that's not good for us. I mean, do we all just chicken out because a because a revanche's dictator uh, is going to start being aggressive. Yeah, we weren't ready for it. And the, the reason we weren't ready for it was because our misassumptions about what our nuclear deterrence really meant. And right. what Putin knows is what every other head of state knows, is that if somebody uses a nuclear weapon, we're not going to retaliate because that does mean mutually assured destruction. So Putin knows that. Biden knows that. All of the heads of state in Europe know that. So that means we just have to let some bully run his course until he's what? Either when will he be satisfied? And he won't be satisfied until he recaptures every one of the states that were part of the old Soviet Union. I agree with you. And I got to tell you, Paul, as a guy who, since my teenage years, has been anti-war. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I find myself really swallowing hard on this one because you know i, I mean my i remember conversations with my father about those stupid republican and my dad was a lifelong republican but about those stupid republicans who opposed the war when he was when he was a little kid you know when he was a teenager who didn't want to take on hitler because they thought oh we can work with hitler and why should america disrupt and why all the sacrifice that's going to be involved and, and it's that evil franklin roosevelt and my dad was gung-ho to go off to the war I think that 80-year cycle is coming back around again. Here we are, 80 years out from World War II, and we're, we find ourselves once again facing basically worldwide fascism that wants to dominate the planet, or at least dominate a large chunk of Europe. And uh, Paul, I got to run, but thank you for the call. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The first producer of my program, he's a talk show host in Vermont. I, I don't know if he's still doing that, but he was when we knew him back in 2003 when we started this program. He helped us start the show. And he just tweeted something that I think is absolutely profound. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to, I, I liked it. I'm going to go ahead and actually retweet it to make it really easy for you to find. He said, I don't believe that NATO expanded east. 
Now, think about that for a moment. This is the big talking point. This is like, you know, Rand Paul and all these guys, you know, and I've, you know, I occasionally get a caller from somebody who's like using this old Russian talking point of, oh, well, we've got to invade Ukraine because NATO is coming for us. So anyhow, back to Rama Schneider. He says, I don't believe that NATO expanded east. What happened was a number of nations recently freed from the yoke of Moscow ran to the West as fast as they could, which is absolutely true. NATO doesn't go knocking on people's doors. You've got to apply to be a member of NATO. NATO doesn't solicit membership applications. A country has to apply. There's a process that typically takes years. The country has to go jump through all kinds of hoops to meet their qualifications. And then all 30 NATO nations unanimously have to say, yeah, okay, we'll let them in. So it's not that NATO expanded to the east. It's that countries that had been freed from the Soviet Union, make no mistake about it, I lived on the border with East Germany for a year in the 80s. I was in the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union. This was not what Karl Marx had in mind when he talked about communism. This was a dictatorship run by a small group of very, very wealthy oligarchs pretending to be party bosses, or, you know, they actually were the party bosses, who kept millions of people basically in slavery. There's no other way to characterize what the Soviet Union was. Maybe, you know, the, the revolution, yeah, let's go back to 1917, great ideas. Let's overthrow the czar. Let's have an egalitarian paradise. Some of the early thinkers involved in the Russian Revolution, the early communists, from my read of history, were embracing the highest ideals conceivable. But what happened when Lenin and then Stalin took over? The Soviet Union turned into an insane dictatorship. I mean, like right up there with Hitler's dictatorship. Stalin killed tens of millions of his own people. And so, yeah, these countries that were under his control, Poland was under Soviet control from 1945 until 1989, when Lech Walesa was leading the, the, the Solidarity Movement, they finally broke free. I mean, the Soviet Union disintegrated the year later. Two years later, I guess it was, 91. Vincent in Prescott Valley, Arizona. Hey, Vincent, what's on your mind? Is there any justification for Russia doing what it's doing what I see is the same line of uh, tactics the U.S. has always used, which is ad hominem, find one man that's responsible for all the atrocities like Hitler uh, and put it in Putin. The historical data shows, and my dad was not a Republican, he was a union organizer, and he worked for people to better themselves. And he was a communist. I said, hey, now that the Soviet Union is broken up, what's going to happen? He said, countries next to the Soviet Union were always under control of the Soviet Union, and they're really not suited for getting along with each other. And the only country keeping them from fighting each other was the Soviet Union. And now it's come to pass that these countries have been fighting each other, Bosnia-Herzegovina, all, all Eastern Bloc countries, now we're believing that it's okay to go to war against Russia. That's what was predicted by my father to me in conversation of political science. 
Yeah, I can, I can give you, I can, there's a book called The Fourth Turning that Strauss and Howe wrote back in the 1990s that predicted that right around this time, there would be another war in the world. Now, they didn't say who, um, but they said we would be in another world war by, by, the, by 2020, by, you know, by this time. And, uh, and one, one, last, one last point. Yeah. Because, because the Soviet Union broke up, we got people that are capitalists like Putin. Soviet Union never should have broken up. And if Putin gets it back, it's not communism. The Soviet Union will not be communism. It'll be capitalism at its worst. I agree with the final point you made there, Vincent. Thank you. Kim in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Kim, what's up? I do believe that we are getting ready to go into Ukraine. Two Sundays ago on Meet the Press, I'm not positive, but I think it was Senator Coons made uh, indication that I think the Senate is getting ready to okay the, uh, the you know, for us to go in there. I, I don't understand why we haven't done it sooner, because I believe we need to push Russia all the way back into Russia and take out those batteries that they're, they're sending the long-range missiles in on. I, I, I think you're right, Kim, and here's how I see it playing out. We have not had an excuse to put soldiers on the ground in, in Ukraine. And we got that excuse yesterday, or maybe it was the day before yesterday, when I believe it was yesterday, though, that, that uh, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, we are going to reestablish, or maybe it was Biden, I, I, I don't know who made the announcement, but they've all referenced it, that the, the woman who is currently our uh, ambassador to Slovenia is going to become, in short order, our ambassador to Ukraine, and we're going to reopen the embassy in Ukraine that Donald Trump closed in 2019 when he fired Marie Yovanovitch. He fired our ambassador and left Ukraine without an American ambassador for the last year of his presidency. And, you know, we've had career diplomats there, but we have not had an ambassador in Ukraine since then. Once we have an ambassador and an embassy, that ambassador and that embassy are going to require security. Who provides security to embassies? The United States Marine Corps. So Correct. now we've got boots on the ground in Ukraine. And if that embassy comes under attack, or the region around that embassy comes under attack, or if the president thinks he can build a good case that the region around the embassy, say the city of Kiev, is on the verge of coming under attack, suddenly we've got an excuse to bring in, you know, a whole bunch of military folks. And now you've got a ground war with U.S. soldiers on the ground in Ukraine. And I am not hoping for this, but I think, I think it's a very real possibility and maybe even a probability. And I think that we're being prepared for it. In, 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 not, not in some you know, horrible, oh my God, let's manipulate the American people way, but you, you can't take a country to war without explaining why you're going to do that. And you know we've been lied into three wars in the last 50 years or so. Frankly, I don't think we were lied into World War II. And I think this is probably more analogous to that than anything else. Mark in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Mark, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. Uh, watching you forever. Former Bernie uh, delegate. I've got a bit of a different perspective than most people, I think, because I used to be married to a Russian woman and, you know, have a daughter with her and uh, been to Russia a couple times. And uh, my fear is what this is going to turn into is to showcase tacular nukes on both sides, kind of a little test.
mm-hmm. to see if conventional wars can be done with two uh, uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, Ukraine's is going to be a radioactive wasteland after this is over, which is just uh, just awful, just awful. I see that and, uh, as Putin's end game if he thinks he's losing. If he, if he thinks, not so much if he thinks he's losing in Ukraine. I mean, he's already suffered some significant defeats. But if he thinks that he's losing power in Russia. I think he's going to do it. Yeah, I, I agree. Because the thing is, is I've, we've been talking to people that are in Russia. And uh, obviously, you know, people there have to say they support Putin. Right. But. For the most part, nobody does. Uh, you know, they know what's going on. And uh, but, you know, what's your choices? Go to jail for 15, 20 years, uh, disappear, get poisoned. Um, you know, it's a bad situation. You know, and I, I was in Russia, in Moscow, back when uh, my uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous, but my uh, uh, father-in-law, he was the vice president of the Academy of Science for Russia and Tajikistan. Well, and uh, and uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, so I met some pretty heavies when I was in Moscow and whatnot. And that was around the time when things were going uh, uh, private. And this is uh, in the early 2000s, you, know, you mean, or late 90s? Yes, mm-hmm. late 90s. And, uh, you know, and uh my wife's uh, family, uh, part of it, had uh, was lucky enough. They were in, uh, basically, uh, they would check things when they came into the country, uh, you know, uh, shipping and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was privatized and, and, and given to them. And uh, obviously, they've done very well. And uh, there's some bankers and things like that. So, but uh, even these people... They're they're not for this war. They see what it's doing, and so I, I don't know what's in Putin's head. I really don't. Well, he wants uh, he he thinks he's Peter the Great. Uh, you know, it, it certainly seems that way to me. But but uh, if anybody in the world should have an institutional memory of the horrors of war, it should be the Russians. And, absolutely. And I, I think it must that's be the what, Russians. That, yeah, and that's what I don't get because you know the other thing is when, when I was down there one time, I was down in Tajikistan. And because I was trying to help my, uh, I used to work in medicine, and I was trying, you know, I talked over the phone, and her, her grandmother was obviously in congestive heart failure, and I got a bunch of Lasix and took it over there. But I actually, you know, wound up smuggling money out of this, out of Tajikistan for my father-in-law because it was so bad because that country had turned into four Muslim sects fighting each other for control. Oh, geez. And you know, you know all about Tajikistan. I, I don't know, know a lot about it, but I, I, that, that North, makes sense. Mark, I'm sorry, I got to run. Northern but, Alliance. Yeah. Oh, the Northern Alliance. Oh, okay. It's a great story. Mark, thank you so much. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. John in Medford, you're on the air. John, what are your thoughts? Just from an historical standpoint and kind of understanding why those countries in Eastern Europe have the views that they do, it's really important to remember that it wasn't just Hitler that invaded Poland in 1939. He had an agreement with Stalin 
where he took the western half of Poland and Stalin invaded uh, the eastern half of Poland and essentially occupied it. Uh, the, the agreement that Hitler and Stalin had also basically divvied up uh, Eastern Europe, where uh, the, the, um, the Baltic states were given to Stalin as well. Uh, so they have a lot of really good reasons to be wary of Russia just, uh, just because of that history. Um, going point. back to how World War II started. So right. I think that's important to remember, too. Um, but, but what I was thinking, and this is why I called in, was I could totally see how uh, we, we would get involved in Ukraine by establishing a no-fly zone over western Ukraine. You could almost draw a line from Kiev to, uh, down to Odessa, uh, where there's really no land action anymore. They're bombing and sending missiles in, but there's now there doesn't seem to be any thinking that there's going to be, you know, land conflict in western Ukraine. And it's easy for me to see how we might say, okay, a no-fly zone in western Ukraine, uh, not extend it over into the Donbass and where all of the, 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 the ground action is going on. But I, I, it's, it's easy for me to see how that might be how it starts with us uh, essentially going in saying Ukraine's a sovereign country, they've asked for our help, and, and we're going to do this in western Ukraine. Um, and I, and to be honest with you, e- even though um, we're all afraid of World War III, you know, I grew up during the Cold War in you know, the 1980s and, and am aware of the history, and, you know, we can't be afraid. We can't make our decisions just always based on fear. You know, we, we stood up to the Russians in Berlin and over Cuba and, uh, and a lot of other places, and we weren't afraid to, to take some chances, you know, to, to protect the West and to protect democracy. Uh, I think it's a mistake for us to, to basically be afraid to say to the Russians, hey, this is the way it is. If this is the way you want to play it, then we're going to play it this way, too. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, kind of at least stand up to them that way. Anyway, those are my thoughts. I just wondered what you were thinking about th- a no-fly zone, maybe a limited one. I think your observations are, are uh, spot on, I, uh, trenchant. I, I, would, I would add that um, I think that establishing the embassy, I mean, look at the embassy politics in Israel. You know, I mean, embassy politics are huge. Once we say, and I realize we have a, an embassy building there and it's technically U.S. property, but nonetheless, once there's an ambassador there where we just say, yeah. uh, we feel that this territory of the United States, this, this embassy in Ukraine is now being threatened, and so we're going to impose a no-fly zone, at least over, over Kiev, uh, where the embassy and, is. And I- yeah, I think originally when Joe Biden was saying, and, and I, I remember when he said this to a reporter, you know, who, who just asked him, and he said, well, yeah, you know, we, we put an American pilot in there, and suddenly we're shooting at the Russians, and now, boom, you've got World War III. I think that at that point in time, our, our government did not believe that the Ukrainian government could withstand the Russian assault. And, yeah. and we were just trying to let it get done with and mourn it and move on. And now it's obvious that that's not going to happen. And so, you know, this is the old Winston Churchill thing. You know, America always does the right thing after it's exhausted all the other options. That seems like that's the way we're going. John, thank you for the call. Very thoughtful analysis. Will in Broomfield, Colorado. Hey, Will, what's on your mind? Talking about war, I wanted to refer you to a book written in 1979. It's called The Third World War by General Sir John Hackett 
former NATO general. He served for he, he was a, he was British, and he wrote a, a novel. And, it's, uh, and he got a lot of his other experts in there talking about a war between NATO and the Warsaw Pact in August of 1985. This is when the uh, Soviet Union the, was still the Soviet Union. And I remember reading it, but I also remember reading that a lot of the problems the Soviet Union faced at that time are starting to see now. They tried this large blitzkrieg offensive into West Germany. This is what I remember. In, in the novel. 30, 40 years. In the novel, Yes. But uh, NATO resistance was stronger than expected, and a lot of the uh, resistance from the uh, local population was stronger than expected. And so the expected Russian dominance in the air and land didn't materialize as quickly as they had to. And so the upshot is, in a matter of just a few weeks, um, it was a nuclear exchange. As I recall, the USSR launched a missile against Birmingham, England. NATO retaliated against Minsk. And at that point in the novel, Soviet generals said, enough's enough, and they basically staged a coup to stop the war from escalating at that point. Wow. But I'm, I'm seeing a lot of similar dynamics playing out here. And remember, you know, Putin was a Soviet operative. He was, he was, a, he was a Soviet born and raised. And, and, oh, yeah. he, and a lot of the tactics that he is using now, I remember these are old Soviet tactics, and I remember reading them in this book. Mm-hmm. And so we're just kind of, you know, this is this has been discussed before, mm-hmm. and um, and and like I said, I just wanted to call your attention to it. It's available on Amazon. Apparently, it's very very expensive and rare right now. For some reason, it might be a hot topic, but it's called the Third World War, August 1985. General Sir John Hackett and others are the uh, are the fascinating. And well, thank you. And it's thanks thanks killing. for sharing that. It's uh, fascinating. Zeke in Portland. Hey Zeke, what's up? Uh, well, you had a guy on earlier uh, this morning named Brian, uh, and he did, you know, with guys like Brian out there, you don't even need Sergey Lavrov, who was waving the nuclear blackmail thing again yesterday. Mr. Brian said that if we shoot down a Russian aircraft in the morning, you'll have Armageddon in the evening. I mean, he exactly said that. And uh, Biden, who he is a big fan of, who I am not a big fan of, has a word for that kind of thing. It's called malarkey. It's pure malarkey. And here's here's the thing, Tom. Two things. The Russians and Putin are many things, principally evil. They are not, however, suicidal, right. number one. Number two, you have to explain to me. Brian has to explain to me. Maybe you. I don't know. Did the shoe fit? Whatever. How is it? Biden has said, more than one occasion. We will defend every inch of NATO territory. How does the nuclear blackmail magically disappear when the Russians invade one of the Baltic states, which if they if they get to where I think they're going in Ukraine, the Baltics are next. How does the nuclear blackmail magically disappear when they invade a NATO country? And if it's not valid, then how is it valid now? Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, we have spent my entire lifetime scared to death that you know we're going to bring down the entire world with a nuclear war the, the nuclear missile exchange and and everything is going to be turned into a crisp and and mutually assured destruction and all that and uh, you know I'm, I think in in at some level that's being reconsidered it's 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 weird to even talk like this I mean it's just even thinking like this is Anyhow, Zeke, thank you very much for the call. Spot on. 
and welcome back. Okay, Michael in Chicago. Hey, Michael, you want to say? Hi, uh, how you doing? Good, good. What's on your mind? Um, I'm just trying to say, please slow down about the running to war, banging the drum to war. You know who pays the price of war? Who's going to pay the price of war? It's the Ukrainians, and it's the American servicemen that have been there. As a Vietnam veteran, I, uh, I'm opposed to any war. Okay. And, uh, I get people it. like you. So you, uh, so you think that you think that, that Ukraine should just say, "Okay, Russia, come on in." This this is a, a thing between Russia and Ukraine. Right. Okay. So you think and that we're, Russia we're, should just I'm take over Ukraine? Ukraine. We're prolonging the, uh, the the conflict there. We could stop it tomorrow if we want. By just giving but Ukraine we, to Russia. We want because the military industrial complex. Are, are they you concerned, be, Michael? More money, there's no more war for them. I, you know, I want to be very clear here. I am not advocating for war in Ukraine or for the United States getting involved in war in Ukraine. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I, I think the sure, best outcome sure, of this thing is sure. that Putin gets bleeded, bled so badly, or Russia gets bled so badly, that Russians kick out Putin. That's, in my mind, that's, that's the best outcome. But my question to you, Michael, if you could stop yelling at me, my question to you is after we say to Russia, okay, fine, you can have Ukraine. You don't have to kill any more people. You don't have to rape any more women. You can just have the whole damn country. What do we do when Putin then says, okay, thank you very much for Ukraine. Now I want Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland. What do we do? I don't know, but all all I've heard, I've been listening to this stuff for the last 30 minutes. All I heard is Guys are sitting in their mother's basement telling them telling you different scenarios that we can do. Yeah. That's, that's uh, you know, yeah, nobody, nobody has called in from a war zone. You're, you're right on that. Michael, I get it. Uh, and I, you know, I have literally spent my whole life opposed to war. This is, this is an extraordinarily difficult conversation. Sharon in San Marcos, California. Hey, Sharon, what's up? Hi, t- Hi, Tom. Uh, you know, you get these guys, not this guy, but other guys who call in with Putin's uh, talking point about uh, NATO being so close. Or and Minsk that's agreement why he's going stuff. Into, yeah. Yeah. And that's why he's going into Ukraine, right? Well, if he takes Ukraine and Moldova, NATO's going to be even closer. So that that is not logical, that, that right. kind of talking point, right? It makes no sense. If he's trying to not want NATO up against his borders, why is he taking Ukraine? Well, and I think Rama's point that this is not NATO moving east. This is countries trying to move west, essentially, trying to adhere themselves to the to Western values, to, to Western Europe by joining NATO. Yeah, but is he worried about NATO, or is he just, like you said before, he's just trying to get back his old Soviet Union back? Oh, yeah. Well, I, well I, I, I don't have to say it. Putin himself said it. So, yeah. Right. Um, and I don't think he's but that talking point about, well, you know, NATO was right, you know, right next to him and all this kind of stuff. That makes no sense, because if he takes Ukraine, NATO is going to be even closer. And so he obviously don't, doesn't want those countries to go west, yeah. like you said. Yeah. No, this right? is this is this is about. This is about putting the band back together. I, I, you know, Sharon, thank yeah. you very much. Larry in Sonoma, California. Hey, Larry, what's up? Good morning, Tom. Uh, I was thinking about this, and I'm kind of like you. I was really anti-war and did put a lot of thought into the 
Vietnam War because of my age. Um, so what I see here and what I'd like to, to hope that has been done by our government that when uh, Biden went to Europe, he went there to approach him with the history of what's gone there. Yes, we gave the Soviet Union a lot of territory after World War II because we thanked them for World War II and felt they deserved it, and we didn't want to prolong another war over territory. Right, right. We didn't want to go to war with Stalin. Yeah. So I hope that's out there and that they've decided, whoever he's talked to, NATO, European Union, uh, whatever, has said, here's the history. Uh, we had the Budapest Accords. You've broken that. Uh, it looks like it's uh, like World War II is after assets uh, that Ukraine has. It has the wheat and the, the, the factories that are, are working. Right. So, yes, the Soviet Union broke down. We're sorry that didn't work out. These countries have now been independent and working well independently. So whether he's scared of democracy, that is not what it's about. Um, we uh, hopefully that the uh, international theme will have it all down, and then that eventually, when they cross the line, tactical nuke or whatever it is, or go after a city or more of the massacring, that say that's it. If you yeah. don't turn your tanks around, if you don't turn your troops around. Larry, I'm going to stop you right there because <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, get out there, get active. As Alexei Navalny said, tag your it. We'll continue the conversation tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.